Welcome, everyone, to episode 231 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode, we are not going to the Mushroom Kingdom. And instead, we're traveling back in time nearly 40 years to discuss the biographical sports drama about the origin of the iconic basketball shoe line, Air Jordan, aptly called Air. Before we get to that, however, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm good, Scott. I'm wearing sackcloth and ashes, of course, to lament that uh, Taylor Swift and Joe Alwyn have broken up after six years. Yeah, um, I saw that last night as I was about to go to sleep. And then it was it was very surreal, actually, because I saw it a couple hours before I went to an event here in Charlotte that was at a it was at a concert venue. It's it's known as the Taylor Swift night, basically, where. Uh, it's a it's a DJ. He goes across the country doing this, but basically, it's like he just plays Taylor songs against uh, you know a backdrop of like the music videos, sure. and he hypes up the crowds. You know, you sing and dance along. Uh, very fun, but uh, it was a little weird to go to that uh, and listen to some of the songs that are about Joe, um, sure. and you know the long lasting nature of their relationship because it is like the longest relationship that she's had. Longer than any Since relationship I've had. Celebrity, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. I mean, I, it's it's sad, but it's you know, it's their own business. Like until she writes more songs about it, which honestly, honestly, this next I was saying to somebody this this next album is probably going to be like emotional terrorism, um, sure. because she has a a quote. There was like an interview from a, a while back where she was talking about like. I don't even remember which song it was, but she was like describing one of her songs, but she was describing that like the couple in the song have just broken up very civilly and gone their separate ways. And, you know, mm-hmm. nothing dramatic happened. They just like grew apart, which is, it sounds like is exactly what happened with her between her and Joe based on the statements that have been issued. Yeah. And she was like, that's like the most devastating breakup of all when that happens is what her quote was or whatever. So that just, that makes you think, um, yeah that the next album is probably going to be rough. And it's obviously interesting too, that she um, is in the midst of the, the world tour, the, the gigantic eras tour mm-hmm. while all of this is going on. But, um, but yeah, there you go. That's talking T Swift. That's why everyone came, came to the podcast. Yeah. I mean, I saw, I saw the video getting QRT of her at like the, one of her, one of her concerts or whatever in the last couple of weeks. I'm not sure if it was the one in Arizona that kicked off the tour or the one in Texas, but Talking about like how everyone's going through something or what? Uh, did you see this video? It was passing around, and people now I'm think sure she was I've talking about that, her yeah. relationship with Joe ending because it would well, been like and, roughly the right. And time. another thing, another thing that people have p- p- pointed out too is that you know she's had basically the, the same set list, except she does like the two surprise songs every night. But um, like to everyone's surprise, like I guess it was either in Vegas or whatever the last place she went to was uh houston yeah uh no dallas um sure she changed she changed one of the songs from like the the set list she changed invisible stream which is like a love song from her about her and joe to the one which is more about moving on from a relationship and she just at the, when she did it, she commented like, "Oh, I'm just mixing it up for you guys. You thought you knew the set list and all this stuff, blah blah blah." But mm-hmm. now, of course, people are reading more into it. Of like, well, now we know why she changed changed yeah. that song. Sure. Yeah. Everyone's going there through go. something. 
Yeah, that's, that's inside baseball. When are you going? When's your when's your concert date? April 30th, end of this month. It oh, is Lordy. rapidly approaching. It's actually three weeks from today, I believe, right? Yeah. April 30th? Yep. Wow. 16th, 23rd, 30th. Are you going to be okay? Someone's nuts. with you, right? You're not going by yourself. No, I'm going with my friend Emma. Um, that's right. And yes, we will be okay. okay. I will be okay. Are you sure? <laughs> tbd tbd all right cool all right well we'll make sure to record the podcast extra early yeah <laughs> that might, might be a good idea yeah um anyway that is not you know it, just in spite of what you might believe after the first four minutes of our podcast uh, taylor swift will not be probably coming up too much if at all for the rest of our runtime because as i already mentioned this week's topic of conversation is the air jordan origin story air Directed by Ben Affleck, his first time back in the director's chair since 2016's Live By Night, and written by Alex Convery, Air stars Matt Damon as Sonny Vaccaro, Nike's basketball talent scout, who is tasked by CEO Phil Knight, played by Affleck, with reinventing the Nike basketball shoe line, albeit with a limited budget. Exhausted by Nike executives' lack of player knowledge and unimaginative ideas, Vaccaro becomes obsessed with signing Michael Jordan, who his peers believe to be unobtainable due to his love for Adidas and how expensive his contract would be. Vaccaro pushes to go all in on Jordan, however, focusing their entire budget on the one star, forgoing opportunities to hedge on other athletes, much to the chagrin of VP of Marketing Rob Strasser, played by Jason Bateman. But Strasser, along with Knight, think Vaccaro is insane and... Only and it takes only Vicar going around going around fiery agent David Falk, played by Chris Messina, and booking a meeting with Michael and his family in person with Michael's mom Dolores, played by Viola Davis, on the advice of his friend and colleague George Raveling, played by Marlon Wyans. After that, Knight and Strasser start to believe, and it's a race against time to put together a pitch that will defy the odds and win over the soon-to-be greatest basketball player of all time. Scott, did the experience of watching air make you feel like you were soaring through a crowded, cheering stadium like Michael is in the now infamous Air Jordan logo? Or was this historical sports drama bogged down with a bit too much inside basketball to effectively reach the heights it aims for? This movie's a lot of fun, Scott. I'll just come right out and say it. Um, I w- I, I, my excitement had grown for this, kind of seeing the trailer. Um, the fact that it looks like it, you know, it looked like it was going to be more of a behind the scenes procedural type movie, right? Like, again, has been compared to Moneyball um, by more than one critic. Um, definitely doesn't reach the heights of Moneyball, um, which is, you know, an all time movie, not just sports movie. But um, it does feel like a throwback old fashioned movie in a lot of ways, which I appreciated. I mean, it is. Uh, it is a truly like they don't make them like they used to type of big movie star vehicle where, you know, most of the scenes are taking place in offices, in boardrooms, you know, in people's houses. Most of the action is on phone calls and again in, in meetings. And, you know, you just have movie star charisma, a soundtrack with all the 80s classics on it. And, you know, this kind of familiar historical story, um, like guiding guiding the way instead of the things that we have come to expect um, that big theater movies are going to be dictated by, you know, special effects and um, these huge franchises and lore and all of this stuff. 
Um, and so as a, as a sort of artifact of what feels like is an increasingly, you know, bygone era of movie making, um, I really, really enjoyed the movie. Um, I, I, again, I'm a sucker for those types of movies. I love the dudes doing their jobs or ladies doing their jobs types of movies. Um, and this is definitely a hall of fame entry, I think, in the, 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 the genre, even just the, the starting off the movie, like five seconds in the movie, we have like the, the needle drop of money for nothing, dire straits. Um, I was like, let's go. I'm in, let's do this. Um, the dialogue, it, it crackles like throughout the whole, throughout most of the movie, you know, again, the, the thing about Moneyball, one of the many things about Moneyball, which makes it so great is the Steve Zalian, Aaron Sorkin, Aaron Sorkin script. And while this, movie doesn't live up to the high standards you know that you would um that that were set by two geniuses like zalian and sorkin um it, i was surprised you know it comes from a first-time screenwriter i was surprised how much like sort of zip that the the dialogue had to it at times and it, it really you know livens up like i said the the proceedings um which are mostly taking place in offices and, and things like that there's no action scenes there's not even any you know, game sequences, even though it's an ostensibly a sports movie. Yeah, it's all um, archival footage. Right. Like, you know, he watches Michael Jordan's shot in the 1983 um, championship game. And then, yeah, there are a couple moments. There's a big speech that happens that's kind of being intercut with footage of Michael Jordan's actual career. But I enjoyed the story as well, Scott. Um, I didn't know a whole lot about this, you know, particular side of the the Michael Jordan legacy I enjoyed you know getting to learn more about the history of Nike and you know the fact that the universal brand that we now know as Nike was not that way at this time they were you know third place a distant third place in the shoe sales behind Converse in ba in basketball shoes. Basketball shoe sales, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Converse and Adidas, you know, Converse had Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Adidas had, you know, a bunch of big names as well. And Nike needed this big break, um, kind of like Scott was describing, to to make a name for themselves. Um, and so I thought that, that part of it was fascinating. I do think if you're gonna knock the movie, um, it definitely does. There's some sort of corporate adulation, I think is fair to say, in the movie and the way that it, um, you know, th there's historical revisionism going on here. Almost certainly, it it has that sort of you don't you don't say <laughs> the newsroom type uh, feel to it at times when you know Matt Damon is like giving these you know sort of speeches about no, I, believe me, guys, Michael Jordan. Like I know you guys don't see it the way I do, but he's the one. He's the one. And of course, we know now. Like we're sitting there, like, well, yeah, he's yeah. The it's one. really yeah. easy to say that a hundred times now. Exactly. Uh, like, like I said, it's a, it's a newsroom type. It's, it's the thing that people would knock the newsroom for doing. Um, but, um, you know, some of that stuff, I just, it's much easier for me to swallow in a, a movie that's this entertaining and funny and, um, you know, has such great performances and, and is an interesting story at the end of the day, you know, again, to bring it back to Moneyball, uh, I don't necessarily agree with a lot of the ideas that are going on at Moneyball about, um, you know, the Billy Beans philosophy, basically, on on um, baseball and P 
people got to get on base and advanced analytics, basically the birth of advanced analytics in baseball. I think a lot of that stuff is hooey, but I can appreciate the movie because it's a, it's a well-told story and, you know, has great performances, great dialogue, all that type of stuff. And again, it's one of those sort of old fashioned Hollywood dramas. Um, and I, I can appreciate this movie in the, in the same way, even if like morally, yes, like I'm not, you know, I can understand somebody maybe had, you know, raising an eyebrow a little bit the way the movie sort of lionizes Nike. Um, when the reality is probably a little bit different than how it's portrayed in the movie. Nevertheless, Scott, you know, this movie at the end of the day, it's a crowd pleaser. I think crowds are very much going to be pleased. I definitely was. Um, the running time zipped by for me. I don't think you have to be a sports fan to be interested in this movie at all. Uh, again, I think Moneyball is one of those rare sports movies that captured audiences outside of you know, sp traditional sports fans because it's telling a human story. And I think that that is what Air is doing as well. You know, a lot of people, we, we meet a lot of the Nike people, we, even somebody like Jason Bateman, who's playing a uh, supporting character here. Their, their like reputations and careers are on the line with this whole deal. And then of course you meet Michael's mom as well, who's played by, you know, the inimitable Viola Davis, who just walks on screen and um, just like has so much gravitas already. And, um, you know, you, you, you care for these people, you, you learn to like these people and you want them to, you know, achieve their goals. And I think that is more than enough to get this movie across the finish line into one of the, you know, more enjoyable films of the year, certainly so far. Yeah, I definitely think when you say that it's a crowd pleaser, I, I think this film is squarely aimed to please crowds. I think he, if you go and listen to Ben Affleck talk about this movie, maybe this is like a banal thing to say, but like he really like he really wants people to like this movie. And I think you can kind of see that in the filmmaking. Like, I think at every corner, he's like, it really does feel like him and, you know, behind the camera trying to, you know, concoct the way that's going to sort of like almost like get people out of their out of their seats almost, you know, and kind of cheering and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, definitely tries to amp up some like very high wattage converse. I mean, not even conversations, almost monologues, even at times. Um, and there's one in, in probably like the, uh, you know, the monologue or whatever, whether you like that or not, like the monologue of the film is like, there's just no way that Matt Damon, like, I'm sorry, like the, in terms of the revision, there's just no way that's happened. Oh yeah, order. of course not. <laughs> There's just and, no way. You know, normally that type of stuff would bother me. You know, I always talk about like a movie like Spotlight, right? Being one of my favorite movies. How because it doesn't have any of that sort of speechifying and mm. Oscar baitiness or whatever. Yeah. I, and I think maybe if this movie came out ten years ago, I probably would not have been as much of a fan of it as sure. I was. Um, you know, if it even if it came out in 2015 when Spotlight came out, but like I said, it just feels like this this type of middle brow movie star you know down the middle type movie is just not getting made and mm -hmm. there was something kind of thrilling about seeing one in all its glory like doesn't apologize for what it is and like you know has these movie stars absolutely cooking in it yeah i think i think that it wouldn't have bothered me if that had been the only instance where it re you could really feel that in the movie but it just feels so full full of it and itself that lionizing that you're talking about I did feel sort of sort of like snapped out of the movie 
a few times by it. You know, there's some scenes where it that doesn't happen, and I think are really effective. I actually think some of the best stuff is actually with the agent, who's played by Chris Messina. Um, there's a couple of really you found that, are... that stuff to be the realistic part, him screaming on the phone. Like, absolutely, that is absolutely okay. the realistic part. Okay. Um, the stories that I hear about agents in Italy, I mean, obviously it's different in, in sports versus media, but I assume that there's similar personalities. Those those conversations are shouting matches a lot of the time. I, I and, not uh, only that, but not only did I find that, you know, quote unquote realistic, I found it frank frankly, I found it as if not more entertaining than some of the other stuff because I didn't feel like I was getting pulled out of the realism of what was happening. Um, that that was just I wanted to highlight. I mean, I don't want to be overly negative, come off as overly negative on the film because I I did enjoy it too, but I definitely wasn't as entertained or as swept away by the proceedings as it sounds like you were. I do think some of the performances are good. One or two of them are not though. One or two of them are quite bad. I thought. I th- I don't know. I don't know who. I don't know if it was Ben Affleck's idea or someone else's idea for Chris Tucker to give this performance, but. I thought that was crazy what he was doing. Like it, it sound, it felt borderline offensive what he was doing. In, well, in that role. I, I, maybe this will change your perspective. I don't know if it will or not, but Michael Jordan himself specifically requested that that he requested that character in get, movie. get included yeah. in the movie. But, but I mean, that performance seems, seems crazy to me. Like, I, okay. like I, I just, it made me like borderline uncomfortable sometimes when, when he was like really leaning into it, really? it just felt really weird for him to be acting like okay. that because I don't know, like it felt like it was a note that he was trying to do. Um, you know, maybe that is how this this person spoke and acted in real life. You know, what what do I I'm I'm not here to say that it's not, but it made me feel a little bit weird watching it in the movie theater. Um <clears throat> again, it, it felt like the kind of thing that someone told Chris Tucker to do. So I'm not saying it's it's all in the performance, but I, I, yeah, it was a weird I, I would just say I don't think it's too different from what Chris Tucker has been doing for most of his career. So, okay. I mean, I'm not, I'm not here. No, to no, I'm not, I'm not saying that career, that is a rejoinder to your argument. I'm just yeah, saying yeah. that it probably means you wouldn't be a fan of his other stuff, which honestly, I understand. Like, well, I've seen, I've seen some of his other stuff, but I watched the fifth element recently and he is obnoxious <laughs> in that movie. So sure. I, I get it. I, I, I really thought he was entertaining in this movie. I, I won't lie, but um, mm-hmm. I mean, look, I've, I've seen, uh, I've seen the rush hour movies and, you know, yeah, I I haven't seen them in 20 years uh, and I'll leave it at that probably. So, yeah. so no, no need to revisit those probably. But I mean, Silver Linings Playbook, he's fine. He's not doing that that stuff in Silver yeah. Linings Playbook. I mean, I guess he hasn't done that many films at the end of the day, right? Like he's only done like a dozen movies. Mm-hmm. Um, It's not like he's been super active in the space, but th- this film, it just kind of felt out of place into me. But, you know, maybe I'm maybe I'm out of pocket on that. Um. Don't want to again. Don't want to dwell too too long on that because I do think Matt Damon is is solid in this. Ben Affleck, I think as well. That they're they clearly have a lot of charisma. They obviously they they know and have worked with each other so many times where they have that sort of instant, <laughs> um, you know, sort of instant, um, almost like a dynamic that really just sort of kicks it off. And and I think Affleck plays like the sort of asshole boss kind of well, like who ultimately is on the side of his employee. Like he comes around and. And is the winning CEO at the end of the day, the although Zen he embarrasses master. himself a couple times. I mean, that uh, another another part of that boardroom scene where Matt Damon gives his like stares into your soul speech, or Ben Affleck comes in and is just totally embarrassing as Phil Knight. Like 
There's just no way that happens. Right? There's just no way. It was funny though. It was it was hilarious. Honestly, I thought that was so funny when he just came in and like, but like you know, that, that's so surprising because you don't like cringe comedy. I thought Scott, because that's so cringe. Yeah, I, I guess it is. I don't know. I just thought it was set up very well with, uh-huh. you know, the meeting that they have. Like, it's a good yeah. setup and it's a good payoff. Like, I mean, they definitely set it up. That is true. I'm just, yeah, yeah. I guess I'm just a little surprised because you're so, you're usually so anti-cringe comedy, I feel like, that it, it just surprised me a little bit. I can accept it in a small dose like this again. When I, when I think fair. that it is, it, you know, there are ways that it can be well-constructed. Yeah, yeah. No, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, but o- overall... I think after the first 30, 40 minutes, I mean, when when the sort of real business scene starts to happen, the real the real deal making behind the scenes when he's having the conversations, when Viola Davis arrives in the movie, like I think that it really does start to pick up. And yes, I do get sucked out of out of the movie at times and some of these points that I've been talking about. But overall, I did. I did enjoy the film, Um, you know, maybe not as much as you did, but I certainly don't begrudge what you're saying about the film and. I definitely would recommend it for someone who's looking for more. I mean, we can't call it standard fare anymore, to your point, but what feels like a more traditional, uh, you know, biopic sports drama type type situation. Um, If yeah, if you like the types of movies that Matt Damon has been making recently, Ford versus Ferrari, Stillwater, The Last Duel, like. Interstellar. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like the, he he is trying to keep that type of movie alive. The mid budget, like you know. Well, this isn't a mid budget film. Star. This this film cost a hundred million dollars to make. Oh, but, okay. Fair enough. Yeah, I don't know how. I guess it was all the cars. I'm not sure. Yeah, I would not have expected that. Yeah. <laughs> I all mean, it shoes. is Amazon, so like everyone's back end is bought out, but yeah, and that does balloon like the talent cost. But I was still scratching my head how this film cost like ninety million dollars to make. Um. It doesn't really feel like they're using too much visual effects. Maybe a little bit. They're using dingy offices for all of the scenes. <laughs> maybe they bought a court. The Nike's. Maybe they used Nike's real corporate office and like busted out a floor and rebuilt it all or something like that. You know, I actually, I want to say I heard Matt Damon actually say something in an interview about like that the location stuff did actually. Yeah, I don't remember exactly what it was, so I don't want to ramble on about that. But I, th- I think that there was something about how that may have contributed to it i mean they weren't paying for michael jordan to appear in the film that's for sure so they weren't yeah i mean that's that's the truth of it all right scott let's talk more about matt like matt and ben as i think we can call them matt damon ben affleck damon's obviously the lead here he's playing this talent scout sonny baccaro who has a pretty prominent role both obviously of course in this story but also since in college basketball specifically one of the title cards at the end of the movie talks about his role in the um, class action lawsuit against the NCAA <laughs> to get college athletes compensated for their image rights. So he's a pretty relevant person in the last decade in you know popular sports news. And obviously, um, this film portrays him as, as a pivotal role in making Air Jordan happen. Scott, did you think Matt Damon sort of lives up to this sort of almost um, not not quite iconic, probably, but extremely important figure in the history of the story and and college basketball yeah absolutely he plays a great regular guy i mean he has in these last few movies that i named there like you know uh ford versus ferrari stillwater the last duel maybe not quite as much of a regular guy but in other ways he is a regular guy yeah, that's sure. De- definitely not a regular in, movie. in last duel. Yeah. um well ben i think is much more of the irregular dude in that sure. but, um, that's definitely true 
but um yeah he he plays like the everyman type of guy i mean like especially in this movie like that is through and through what his character is he's like the you know kind of schlubby looking dude he's got a little bit of a gut you yeah know, is he wearing he, is he wearing a fat suit in this what's he doing i think he must be uh, yeah he must be wearing some kind of a prosthetic there but he um you know he he, he doesn't doesn't have like a family or anything really it seems like he um you know just kind of is is married to this job and mm-hmm. you know he travels around all these basketball events like he is the basketball guy right he's trying to find the yeah. the next great superstar the next person to to uh to to put the nike weight behind and um you know he's he's at a crossroads and I think he portrays the anxiety and desperation of his situation very well because he is the person that, you know, if if this goes south, he's going to be like the first person that is out the door. And Phil Knight straight up tells him that pretty much. Um, and so he everything is pretty much riding on this for him. So, you know, again, maybe the, the speech is a bit much. Sure, sure it is. And I, it obviously didn't go down like that. Sorry, I just think of Mark Wahlberg. If I was there, it wouldn't have gone down like that. Um, but um, it, it obviously didn't go down like that. And, you know, again, thinking back on it now, listening to your comments, it's one of those things. I can't I don't know if I can point to you why it it uh, it worked for me, because it's the type of thing that normally wouldn't work for me. But, you know, I do think Damon's um, performance certainly contributes to why, you know, at the end of the day, maybe I didn't want to stand up and cheer necessarily at the end of the speech, but I was like, you go, like you go, Sonny, when it was, when it was done, um, instead of being rolling my eyes, like, oh my gosh, like, what did we, what did I just witness? Was that, you know, his Oscar clip? Um, I mean, it is his Oscar clip. Not that he's going to get nominated for this. But yeah, I was going to say, it is his Oscar clip. But I guess so did the Best Picture winner from last year. Anyway, it kind of is. I can't explain why necessarily it works, but I do think Damon is giving giving a great performance, and it continues a very impressive run for him, in my opinion. So again, not movies that are doing very well, right? Like you, probably most of those people out there have not seen, you know, The Last Duel or Stillwater, um, in particular. But he's very, very good in those movies, and I like what he is. The types of roles and movies that he is choosing to devote his like late not late career yet, but like, you know, middle late career, um, portion of his career too. After doing, you know, he did the action hero. He did Jason Bourne. Um, he's, you know, he's still trying to sort of keep that movie star alive for all the, the jokers out there who would say there's, there's no movie stars anymore. Yeah. I mean, this film's doing better than, than those movies. I mean, this movie is already blown probably the box office of last duel and, Stillwater combined, probably. Um, I think it made like 31 million international, like domestic international this past weekend, which is obviously, I mean, you know, five years ago, that wouldn't have been a great showing for the, for this kind of film. But now, I mean, this, that feels like a pretty big achievement in, in the current market, especially up against, you know, I know it's a completely different audience, but the super Mario brothers movie, which did like 200 million over the five day Easter weekend. And, Gosh, like what else? I mean, John Wick Chapter Four is still in theaters. Dungeons and Dragons is performing well. Like, there's lots of lots of movies that people are going to go going to see right now, out in theaters. And so to get twenty to thirty million on its opening weekend against some stronger competition, 
yes, I think it is appealing to a different kind of a different audience, and that probably does help that segment appealing to that segment. But it's also an, a good achievement for, you know, Matt Damon, who hasn't sort of headlined a movie that has performed well in the box office and, you know, since before the pandemic, pretty much. So that is a good thing. Ben Affleck. So I, I do agree that. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of like a noted Matt Damon uh, disbeliever. I'm not sure. I'm not I don't buy in on the Matt Damon hype, but I think his sort of his power and, and star wattage, if you will. I do think that part of it is undeniable. I think it's pretty clear that he has a really strong grasp and he holds the camera so well. Um, he, he doesn't really flounder or struggle at all in these movies. And I feel like there's there's just some sort of like uh, effortless nature to some of the stuff that he does, even in this, if that makes sense. You know, nonchalance doesn't quite yeah. cover it, but he just makes he kind of just makes what he's doing look very easy. That where. Like, uh, you know, again, to highlight a moment, for example, we talking about the the prosthetic belly or whatever that he's wearing. There's like the scene where he's in Phil Knight's office. They're having a conversation and um, yeah. Phil Knight is like, do you run? Do you jog or whatever? Do I look like I run. Phil? And he just like he does like a little look, you know, that like, you yeah, know, yeah, highlighting yeah. the fact that he has like this, you know, beer gut, basically. And uh, he's like, do I look like I run? just like the little subtle things like that, like, are yeah. you know, some of the the. Yeah, movies, yeah, he has he has a level of confidence in his roles that I think is really hard to capture. And Ben Affleck is sort of a, a good complement to that. Like he has the sort of same energy, but obviously it's it's a much louder performance. It's a bigger personality than Sonny Vaccaro with Phil Knight. Um, it is weird that like, I mean, maybe Phil, I mean, CEOs are weird people. Don't get me wrong. I feel like. <laughs> I don't know what this this portrayal film felt kind of strange. I don't know. Like, is he really walking around Nike headquarters in like the middle of the night wearing like ski like ski glasses? Like, it's kind of crazy. I mean, uh, maybe I, he was. I would, yeah, I was going to say I, if there's some things that I would believe, like I honestly do think I'd believe because this this is more of a known guy. I mean, Phil Knight is yeah. more of a known dude. He has like a cult of personality kind of thing going on. I think sure. You know, they show the photos of him in the the closing credits, like his feet on the desk and everything like that, which you see yeah. that yeah. captured in the movie as well. So that's true. I would bet that something similar has gone on, and certainly like the Zen Zen stuff we're talking about. Like, I imagine yeah, that, that is stuff probably didn't a pretty feel, important yeah, piece. Yeah, I mean that yeah. that felt more in character than some of like the I'm rolling up to work with these I don't know like rainbow <laughs> polarized yeah whatever like all lens glasses which you know if I, the I'm 80s, sure he did I'm sure he did a weird that. time man yeah 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 and I'm saying I'm sure he did that like it just like it just I feel like I mean I can think of immediate counterexamples to this but it feels like Ben is like trying to go for these like really. I don't know, like over the top kind of character sometimes. Um, I, yeah. I know that last year's um, film with Ana de Armas, Deepwater, is is an example, like the Adrian Lean movie, is an example of that not being the case. But I kind of, I don't know, maybe it's just because of the the last dual talk that we just had, like brief talk we had a couple. Of, like I'm just like, why is he doing these like over the top characters all of a sudden? But I mean, there's obviously counterexamples to that to. to to note as well so maybe it's just a sort of selective selective memory there but it, it's a solid performance i think that he wasn't in the film i was worried he was going to be with that such strong of a character he was going to be in the film more than he was and i think he was probably in the film the right amount 
Yeah. No. Yeah. He was a, he was a good supporting character, and you know, sure. again, sort of that talismanic like figure at the the head of the company. Yeah. Did you did you like what they were doing with the uh, throwing the Nike? I don't know, like code up in different parts of the movie. Uh, did you like that? No, I, I yeah, didn't. I didn't. thought again, that's some of the stuff that makes it feel more like the like corporate adulation like i was saying like yeah oh this was this was the reason that they got to this you know that they were uh -huh. succeeded or whatever because they followed this like code of whatever whatever of business which is just yeah. kind of has weird optics i and maybe i'll go i'll go to work into the office on tuesday and take a big old sharpie and run on the wall behind my desk like what my what my business ethics are yeah get there you go. yeah get to work um, anyway, yeah, J Ben Affleck is is obviously like one of the main people at Nike. He's the CEO. Jason Bateman is there as well, but there's others that sort of make up the next line of or the next tranche of supporting cast. Bateman is one of them. He plays Rob Strasser, who's the VP of marketing for Nike basketball. There's also Chris Messina, who I mentioned earlier, who plays David Falk, who is Michael Jordan's agent. Uh, Chris Tucker, who I shared my thoughts on, and probably Viola Davis. That's like the next line of supporting characters in the cast and probably worth mentioning. Uh, although he doesn't really appear till the second half of the movie, although he becomes more prominent, Matthew Mayer, who plays Peter yes. Moore, is probably the last person of note. Scott, is there a particular direction you want to talk about here? I know I shared my thoughts on on uh, on Chris Tucker already. Would you like to share your thoughts on any of the supporting cast? I think they're all all the people you mentioned there are are great in their own ways. I think they add a lot of flavor to the movie. Um, I mean, like I said with Viola Davis, like she's just such a commanding screen presence. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, from the from the second she walks on. I mean, that might honestly be my favorite scene in the movie. Like with the phone when call he goes to when no, when scene. he goes to their house the first time and yeah. Um and he and Viola Davis just like sit outside and have this conversation. I mean, that is just like the acting between the two of them there is really just the the subtlety of it is, you know top top of the line stuff it really is um and and so you know i i love what viola davis i mean i always love what she's able to do and you know as as sort of the person pulling the strings for the jordan family which again is something that michael jordan had like you know he pushed them towards that idea uh, that hey you know you really need to put the spotlight on my mother here she was kind of like masterminding all of this um corporate stuff for me and by the way the i can't think of what his name is but michael jordan's dad is played by viola davis's husband in real life so. julius Tennan. yes yeah. yeah he himself is an actor as well but obviously not as not as noted as his wife yeah. but and he um, doesn't even have a wikipedia page so take yeah that for what it's worth. um but um you so she's amazing she's always amazing um and yeah, and then the rest, but the rest of the people you mentioned too. I I, I was impressed with Jason Bateman a lot. You know, I, I really usually think of him as you know rest of development or whatever he does comedies or like he's definitely um, he carving a out a different path for the sort of second half of his career. I mean, Ozark yeah. obviously is the easy thing to point out. He plays douchebags a lot. Uh, <laughs> sure, he play, he plays douchebags a lot. It's just kind of the energy he gives off. But like he's able to sort of walk a line with it here. Where like yeah, there are times when he's like being a little you know like douchey because he is i guess he's higher up than than matt damon's character is right um he is yeah yeah um and so you know he's being a little bit of a annoying boss at times but then he has the one you know he gets his scene that i think really 
you know, hammers it home for me mm-hmm. where he's talking about his, I don't remember whether it's a son or daughter, but you know, basically he, his custody arrangement, he, after he separated from his, his wife, you know, he only gets to see the, it's his daughter, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, at four hours every week on Saturday and Sunday, he, you know, yeah. whatever, but, um, he goes and sees her and like, that's all he, he gets to only time he gets to see her, but the one like way he's able to connect with her is that he brings her a new pair of Nikes every single time and she loves them. And like, that's, that's the one way he's able to connect. So like he needs this because it's all he's got left basically. Um, yeah. He needs this as much as Sonny. And that really humanizes the character and everything. And I thought he nailed that scene. I really did. Like, uh, I think maybe out of all the supporting performances, again, you can't really go wrong with Lila Davis ever, but like he might be, he might've been the standout for me just because of how unexpected maybe that it was to see that, that performance coming from him, but he fits in perfectly too. in like the, the, you know, Nike world here, like he, he totally seems like the type of dude who would be working in this role. Like he, he nails that, um, that believability also. And then, yeah, you mentioned Chris Tucker, Chris Messina. I think they're also good. Um, Chris Tucker, mainly there for comic relief, which, yeah, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But um, Chris Messina, um, always love seeing that guy. <laughs> Throw, I guess I mentioned the newsroom earlier, but, yeah, uh, newsroom legend Chris Messina. But, um, yeah, I, I, I mentioned this to you, Scott, after I watched the movie. I was like, I think there's a scene that you're, is going to kill you in this movie, like, um, comically mm-hmm. and it is the scene where he is just screaming on the phone like yeah. into the phone uh, uh, matt damon just like berating him with every single like expletive in the book um i guess it's about the fact that he went to to jordan's ha- the jordan's house right yeah um, he said it would be it would be disrespectful to call so yeah or unprofessional and it, it'd be unprofessional sorry he'd be unprofessional and again damon is doing such great stuff in the scene just like his reactions to like uh to messina on the phone or everything are, are so good too so yeah you know great great like sort of supporting cast of that guy is showing up and putting in a shift i mean chris messina is the definition of a that guy for sure yeah 100 uh, totally. i mean he's like he is a supporting role in pro- like every tv show you've seen probably <laughs> obviously that's an exaggeration yeah. but uh, yeah, Jason Bateman, huge fan of him from Game Night back in 2018. A film, Scott, which you still have not seen or have seen? Game Night? I've seen, I've seen okay. Game Night. You I, saw it. Okay. Like I can't remember if you've seen it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I was a big fan of him as, all the way back from then in terms of what he was doing outside of it, those traditional roles that you were describing. And I think that's a great shout saying that he's maybe has one of the more standard. Because I think, I think his character kind of takes you by surprise a little bit. It's sort of early on. It's just he kind of just feels like he is another Nike executive that Sonny Vaccaro has to work with that Matt Damon's character has to work with, but he really does end up getting more of a shift to, to put in here, which I think is a real credit to what he's able to ultimately sort of capture. Yeah. I'm just looking at Christmas scene as like a, a filmography here. He was in the newsroom. He was in sharp objects. That's right. He was a detective in sharp objects. I forgot about that. Um, Gaslit was his more recent, most recent recurring role. Um, the Mindy project, he was the main role for a few seasons, just damages. He was a character on damages for a while. He's just been in everything, you know, just a little bit of everything from the guy. Yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah, I, I, I was a big fan of that. You're absolutely right about that scene. I mean, that scene killed me. I'll go ahead and spoil it. Probably my favorite scene in the film. Definitely comedy wise, at least was that I really loved, really loved that scene. And, 
Yeah, maybe it's because that just felt like the most accessible from some of the stuff, some, some of the stories that I hear working every day, but like felt super believable. The comedy was great. Can totally imagine this guy like absolutely losing it um, on the phone yeah. because that's just kind of how agents are like taught to interact with people uh, to defend their clients in that way. It's like not necessarily productive, but they're just going to treat everyone like garbage. Um, and hey, it works for it works for them a lot of the time. So, I mean, BoJack Horseman's kind of the same way. There's some characters in BoJack Horseman who are agents who are kind of like that, too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not that BoJack Horseman is like the barometer for an agent in the film Air. Princess Carolyn. Yeah. I mean, she's probably not one of them, but Mm -hmm. some of the people that she works with are kind of like that, I feel like. Anyway, yeah, big fan of the sort of ensemble here. I mean, you're right. Viola Davis, you can't go wrong. So it's sort of hard to complain too much. Last sort of things to talk about, though, Scott, it's like, so one of the things I think you said you really enjoyed, just like the boardrooms of it all, right? Like where where the where the juice happens. If the action is the juice, the action is in the boardroom in this in these scenes, Scott. So I know you said that you really felt like these scenes worked and why the film worked so well for you is because these scenes really piece everything together. And yes, maybe some of it doesn't really feel true to life or how it actually happened in reality, but it made for more entertaining fair. I mean, we talk regularly on the podcast, Scott, about how sometimes the the truth or what really happened doesn't make for a good movie going experience, doesn't make for good cinema. So maybe if you want to elaborate a little bit more on that at all and what what if there are particular scenes or moments that really stand out to you, you know, you may, there's obviously the big climactic scene, but if there's other points yeah. as well. Yeah, well, again, you know, when you have movies like this, you are requiring you are asking your actors and the dialogue also to a somewhat lesser extent to keep people interested, right? Because, you know, watching people talking on the phone and being in corporate meetings is not something that is conventionally exciting to moviegoers. And they are able to do that, you know, again, with some of the the phone call scenes, you know, I mean, again, it's it's hard to be bored during that Christmas scene, uh, just, you know, ranting scene for sure. Um, but they build it all up in that climactic scene, right, like of when the Jordans come to, to Nike to meet with Nike. They want that to be like, you know, this is the sports movie and here's the big game, right? Like they build it up like that. Um, and I think they do a good job, again, because you, you they establish the characters, you really like care about these people you understand where everyone's goal is you have like the the almost like the heist movie scene where they're all like in the lab or basement wherever they are like and they're like okay here's how we're going to approach it right like again this is the scene where where they're telling ben affleck okay you have to show up eight minutes late you know because it looks like you're so busy right with doing other things and um, they're cooking man they're cooking yeah but you know chris tucker's there matthew mayer's there uh is bateman there i don't think so he is yeah um, he's there okay yeah he is there uh but they're all planning right so again it is it is almost like a heist movie in a way the way that they set it up like here's everyone's individual part right like chris tucker comes in and he like he charms them right away with his you know humor and everything and then you know you have um bateman is going to come in and be sort of the more corporate side of things and then finally Phil Knight's going to come in like, Oh, here's the, you know, here's the head of the company. This again, sort of talismanic figure. Um, and it's, it's all set up really well. And then, you know, again, he deviates from the plan, uh, Sonny deviates from the plan and 
goes on his big speech and it's it's like the last second buzzer beater you know in uh, in the sports movie um if you don't execute it well like again it, it could fall really flat um and maybe you know it sounds like maybe the speech didn't quite hit for you scott but which is again i understand but i think i think um, it's one of the things where it, it 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 comes through pretty clear in the moment but like a second later you're like this doesn't feel real because mm -hmm. like i don't know it's just like i was locked in in the moment which is why i don't want to come off as too negative but it's one of those things where like the sugar high fades really quickly for me yeah. after it just because it feels yeah. so I get out of place but again at the end of the day i think the the impetus falls on the actors and the dialogue the writer to make this stuff entertaining to watch yeah. even if you're not someone like me who just like enjoys that stuff mm -hmm. period yeah um and they they succeed right like again we're talking about this being a crowd pleaser that most crowds are going to be pleased it feels weird to say about that about this movie on paper right just because the of what the setup of the movie is right like it's about contract negotiations right it's like you have michael jordan but he's not going to be playing a basketball game in the movie you're not even going to see his face in the movie he says one word in the whole movie um and yeah um so you're you're taking all of the sexy parts out of the story what you would think would be the sexy parts out of the story and instead you're you're telling the behind the scenes stuff but uh yeah it it really works i don't i don't know what else to say there but the personnel are are able to get the job done yeah i don't know if i have too much more to add on the on those scenes because i think i did talk at greater length earlier on but I found them, I guess, to sort of summarize them and zoom out a little bit. I found them to be hit and miss. Some of them really worked. I think some of those scenes more, I would say the scenes that were more sort of tete-a-tetes where they were more back and forth. So some of the scenes between Damon and Affleck or Damon and Viola Davis, like those, those work better for me than sort of the big showy, showier moments, which I know is ironic that like those are the more cinematic elements. But maybe this kind of movie... Maybe it just needs to figure out some third option. I don't know. Like, maybe that's unfair of me to sort of lob the critique without saying what actually would have been better. But yeah, something about it just didn't uh, didn't work in some of those big, the bigger moments they were taking swings at. But still overall, again, enjoyable. Are, th are there any other thoughts you want to share about Air or should we wrap things up? Great soundtrack again. I mean, it's kind of like this cheesy, might, yeah. cliche, yeah. cliche, like 80s song. But I'm that's how 80s music was. It was all cheesy for the most part. Well, this, so. is, this is the thing I wanted. To, so so I was talking with with friend of the podcast, Jay Habib, about this last night when we were watching Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Um, Tom Cruise, mm -hmm. let's go. And he one of the things he was saying is that why is it the case that in movies that are set in the present day? Filmmakers don't go out of their way to show you how in the present day the film is. But when you're making some sort of period set piece, like specifically in the 80s and 90s, they have to do everything within their power to remind you that the film is set in the 80s and 90s to the point that it feels like extreme and dragging you out of it. I know maybe the point of it is like people want to go see a movie that's set in the like people want that, like want the sort of overdose of of sort of 80s, 90s nostalgia. So maybe that is just simply the answer. But I'm curious, Scott, if uh, if you had any thoughts on this because I thought it was an interesting point because they do hammer you in this movie over the head about like, look how much how many like yeah. pop culture 80s references we can shove in 
to the conversations, to the music, whatever it might be. It's not that deep to me. Like, I just think it's yeah. fun. Again, it, it's one of the sort of hallmarks of this type of movie, right? Like, again, sure. you're going down, you have, this is a, like, uh, a burger and shake type of movie, right? Like, you know, you're going sure. to the, the Alamo yeah, yeah. Draft House. You're not Burger and Coke, it's Burger and Shake. Put now. away, put, whatever, you yeah. know what I mean? But, um, yeah. and, you know, it, what goes great with eating a burger like and watching a movie is like bruce springsteen freaking sister christian and yeah i don't know did did bruce have any songs in there i can't remember but born, uh, born to run that it was like a whole point oh, it was oh, a whole bit God, in the movie. No, born, born in the usa oh born yeah, in the usa but, yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Born in the USA. there was like because he, he even says he's like you know that song that bruce springsteen born in the usa and anyone's like yeah yeah, yeah no it's a, song, it's a whole man. thing yeah i just forgot that um yeah, yeah. yeah but so it just like it fits the vibe right like it's just a. Uh, they're just having fun. It's a it's a old old cheesy style Hollywood, you know. Yeah, it's it's not specific to this film. It's it's not a specific critique of the film. It's mm-hmm. more of like a why do movies set in the eighties have to tell you all about about the Bruce remind you about the Bruce Springsteen song that came out like the year before or something? You know, yeah. it's just like it's it's very over the top. Which I sort of saw what he was saying. It didn't particularly well, bother me, but I thought it was a funny observation. Jay should watch a little film called Boyhood, where the sure. uh, the music is often, which is set in the the modern day, of course, modern era, and the music is often the marker of what time period it is. That feels like it's a uh, it's functional in terms of the storytelling, though, as opposed to yeah, because he's not yeah show. because he's not marking out. Oh, hey, and now we're in year ten. Yeah, he's record relying on the audiences to figure it out based on other clues, including the music. Sure. Uh, I'd be very curious to introduce Jay to Richard Linklater. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like he kind of would be into the before trilogy, to be honest, but I'm not don't, sure about that. Don't other tease stuff. me with the possibility of a future Linklater countdown because. Scott is your number one filmmaker. I'm sure it's going to happen at some point. Yeah. I don't know when it'll be. Maybe we'll the last we thing roll we do. along comes out in 20 <laughs> yeah. years. We'll, we'll revive the podcast <laughs> for 15 years dead for Mary yeah. Long. Who even knows if we'll be alive when that film comes out? Who knows if Linklater's <laughs> going to be alive when that movie comes out? Um, don't don't say that. He's never dying. Okay, he's never dying. Sorry. We know that of anyone, he will be alive when that movie comes out. No yes. one else may be alive, but he will be. For we'll sure. All right, Scott. Favorite scene or moment from Air? Yeah, I kind of mentioned it, you know, just because... It, it, it's funny because most of the movie, again, we're talking about is not subtle. Um, sure. Although, although again, you know, the, the performers are so strong that they bring out subtleties and Damon in particular, I think um, sure. just has some, some more subtle moments, but that scene between him and, and Viola Davis, just the conversation that they have, the way that they're able to just connect and identify with each other. And um, you know, Damon like quotes his mom or something and, and she's like, Oh, she's still with us. And then he's like, no, yeah, it just, the natural rhythm of it feels perfect. And then he goes on and sets up the whole, here's what, you know, here's what's going to happen. You're going to walk into converse and they're going to tell you this exact thing. And even, you know, he's saying it and you're like, Oh, I know. Right. That in 10 minutes, we're going to see this exact thing play mm-hmm. out or whatever. But it's just it's fun. It's just fun to watch all the pieces click into place. And mm-hmm. I do think that is like, you know, one of the more quiet, subtle moments, like scenes in the in the whole movie, like exchanges in the whole movie. So, I don't think him calling his shot on the other companies is, is very subtle, but the rest of the that's scene, yeah, that's probably yeah, yeah, true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Some of the, the acting that they're doing. Yeah. And I, I shouted mine out already as well. It's gonna be the the uh volcanic 
uh, temper of of Chris Messina's David Falk on the phone. Great scene, great comedy. Definitely the funniest scene in the movie for me. And sort of is the peak level of enjoyment of the film. Scott, out of 10, what are you giving air? I give it an 8.5. It's a it's wow. a great Saturday night at the movies. Again, a real sure. burger and shake, Coke, whatever your beverage choice is. I don't drink Coke. Burger and so. shake with Coke. Okay. Um, <laughs> type of movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Damn good time at the at the movie. Sure. Movies. Yeah. Not gonna surprise people the count that I'm lower than, than you. I'm giving it a six point five, but an enjoyable six point five. Ouch. Deserves at least a seven, seven, but okay. Well, it's your scale. Yeah, it's your scale. No, Scott, it's your scale. It's a scale out of 10. Um, and that should just do it for our discussion of air. Let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll be discussing the casting news for the third film in Ty West's X trilogy, Maxine, as well as some news out of Star Wars celebration about the future of Star Wars movies. Scott, it, it feels so long since we've talked about Star Wars. So I thought we maybe we should dust off the old droids and and talk about, you know, that's still a thing oh, what yeah. we're doing over there. Yeah, we'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. As mentioned before the break, Scott Ty West, a filmmaker who uh, had a pretty big year for you last year, I think it's fair to say, has released some news about his upcoming trilogy finisher. Is there only going to be three movies, Scott? Is it? Are we sure that there's only going to be three movies in the, in this in this series? I, I'm not making any you okay. know, definitive. The third film yeah. in his X film series that may or may not be a trilogy, Maxine. Uh, just sort of dropped some pretty heavy casting news on us this past week. And I think maybe we were all a little bit surprised by that. So why don't you share? Yeah. So uh, Maxine is the next film, as you mentioned, following up from X and Pearl, which was his sort of double feature last year. Um, and at the end of Pearl, it was teased that there was going to be this, this next film, this third film, Maxine, of course, in X, Mia Goth plays Pearl and Maxine, Maxine being the young adult film actress, Pearl being the old woman. We then got Pearl, which was the origin story of Pearl. We are now getting Maxine, which I believe is going to be, I think it's a prequel to X. I, I think I'm pretty sure it takes place before the events of X, but I could be wrong. No, um, no, it's after. I think it's when she goes back to Hollywood. I think It is after? Okay. All right, I think yeah. so. It will take place involving the character maxine from x right but involving the adult film underground film world it sounds like um whether that's before or after i'm not totally sure but uh, mia goth obviously is returning she is going to be playing um maxine once again you know these movies last year were especially pearl were huge like star making vehicles for her at least you know among sort of the cinephile indie horror crowd um you know, she's now seen as as one of the like it girls. Of course, she was already in Infinity Pool this year, which was another sort of captivating performance that she gave. And that just deranged, honestly. So she's more than capable of leading a movie like this. And, you know, already already has playing 
this character in X, although that was, you know, a little bit more of an ensemble film. But Scott, the new news about Maxine is the cast, because, of course, the other two films, um, you know, X did have some known faces in it. Of course, uh, Jenna Ortega um, is in there. Uh, you had um, Kid Cudi was also in the film. You had, you know, you had a couple of recognizable people, certainly. But um Pearl had no no one recognizable outside of Mia Goth. And so these movies have not been known for their cast necessarily no far so far, I guess is the point I'm making. But um Maxine, he's clearly leveling up as far as the cast is concerned because we now have the supporting cast for this film. So starring alongside Mia Goth will be Elizabeth Debicki, Moses Sumney. Uh, Halsey, Lily Collins, Michelle Monaghan, Bobby Cannavale, Giancarlo Esposito, and Kevin Bacon. Those last three names, Scott, I can just see all those guys, Bobby Cannavale, Giancarlo Esposito, and Kevin Bacon, all those guys being like the sleazy underground film producers. You know that all of those dudes have that energy um, emanating from them. And I, I can totally see that being the role that they're going to play or an agent or something like He's somebody who's going to try to exploit the character of Maxine probably. Um, but uh, elsewhere in the cast, Scott, yeah, I, I was thrilled to see Elizabeth Debicki's name on here. Of course, we're big fans of her uh, for several years now. She has been working in TV, of course, with playing Princess Diana on The Crown. That has sort of consumed her time recently. So it makes sense that she's not been in a whole lot of movies. Um, but I guess Tenet was probably the last movie that she was in, right? Like, I can't, I can't remember her being in anything since then. But, um, yeah. But, but yeah, she, she's a phenomenal actress. And I imagine would have a pretty major role in this movie if, if she's going to be in it. So, um so that is really cool to see her name in there. I'm very excited to see that. Um, and then you have people like Halsey and Lily Collins, who, I mean, I would guess maybe they're going to play other actresses, you know, at, um, people uh, that are in the same age group as Mia Goth, really. I expect maybe they're going to play other actresses, other people that she encounters in the underground film world. And then Michelle Monaghan, Scott, is somebody that um, and has ne just never really took off, unfortunately, but... Um, I, I've always been a fan of hers. I think if you go watch Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is kind of her breakthrough movie, like you watch her in that movie and it's like, man, how was she not like leading movies for like 10, 15 years after that? Because she is like pretty electric in that movie. Uh, but instead, she's kind of just played supporting roles in a lot of stuff. Of course, she was in Mission Impossible playing Julia. Um, yeah, she's she's been she's been in other films like she's worked consistently, but she hasn't led a lot of films. She, you know, has never been like nominated for an Oscar or gotten that sort of opportunity or anything like that. And she's not going to get that opportunity in Maxine. Right. This is not going to be an Oscar film, of course. But um, but nevertheless, it's cool to see her in a buzzy project like this and what will presumably be a role of some substance to it. So um, that's Maxine. Um Actually, so I forgot there is so there is some detail on the. It, it who, does seem that it's set after, after the event. Okay. Of FX. Yeah, I forgot there's a follow up tweet that is talking about the roles too. And yes, John Carlos Esposito is going to play an agent, um, and then Bobby Cannavale is an LAPD detective, and Michelle Monaghan are LAPD detectives. Kevin Bacon is a private detective. Elizabeth Debicki is a director. So a little bit of more context there on what I was saying, but. 
mostly mostly lines up with, I guess, what I was saying. Um, Michelle Monaghan. So maybe it's not going to be the, the biggest role for her if she's going to be playing a detective. I mean, that's kind of consistent maybe with what she has been doing. Um, but I always enjoy her name popping up. And then Elizabeth Debicki as a director, though, that's cool. Maybe maybe she's going to give off some, uh, like, Olivia Hamilton and uh, Babylon energy. That would be that'd be pretty dope. But um, Maybe. But you're yeah. saying what, what um, Elizabeth Debicki else has been in. I mean, she's presumably going to be in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 that comes out in a couple sure. of weeks. Sure, yeah. That is also a thing, but, um, but yeah, so Maxine, very excited. I mean, I was very excited about this movie already just because I love X and Pearl. I love Mia Goth and both of those movies. And I think Ty West is a really cool director. This just, you know, amps it up my most anticipated list even further to have so many great cast members, um, mm -hmm. you know, alongside Mia Goth. I think Ty West is really shooting for the stars on this one, it seems. Yeah, de definitely loving up. I agree on the cast there. Someone like Elizabeth Debicki. I, I know that she's not you know, A-list necessarily, but her profile is significant. She isn't in a ton of projects, but Tenet was a big movie for her. And being Princess <coughs> Diana on the crown. You know, I don't know. I feel like no one really talks about that show anymore, but like probably yeah. everyone watches it on Netflix at the same time. So like it's going to be a recognizable face in that in that sense, just because it is one of Netflix's like original um shows that sort of catapulted the service into sort of you know original tv show stardom kind of situation so yeah it does it does feel like a little i mean and then Giancarlo esposito is i mean is he a legendary tv character actor at this point i think he probably is right gus fring from breaking bad is yeah like his famous character and yeah better also. he's the villain in mandalorian or one of the villains there's so many different villains in mandalorian but know. also has done plenty of films of course i mean of course yeah yeah, yeah of course he's, but he's probably him. most iconic for his for his tv roles at this point yeah um and there's nothing wrong with that but yeah it feels like a level up is exciting i need to watch pearl i guess that's my next step i gotta go watch pearl so you do, Scott. It'll happen. It'll happen. All right, Scott. The other piece of news is that Star Wars celebration took place over the weekend. Forget all the nonsense about the TV show, Scott. Let's just talk about the movies because that's the things that I think we're probably most likely to see and, and talk about on the podcast moving forward. One of those. So there was basically three films that were talked about. I guess to get it out of the way first, I think they did confirm that Ryan Johnson's films are not currently in active development. We already knew that, but they did confirm that, I believe. They also said that Rogue Squadron, which is the what is that the Catherine Bigelow film, or no, no, it was Patty Jenkins. It was Patty Jenkins. Wasn't Patty it? Jenkins, yeah, yeah, yeah. Patty, the Patty Jenkins movie, which had been sort of like officially paused, could still happen in the future. Red is not happening, and then that sort of leaves one of the films that are in active development. And we sort of, I think, got some news about one of these a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember if we talked about it on the podcast, Scott, but we did hear that I think Stephen Knight was writing a Star Wars movie. Did we hear that or am I making that up? Did we talk about that? Um we've talked about Stephen Knight doing a few things. We've talked about him doing the Vertigo uh remake. Maybe that's whatever. maybe that's I don't what know that we was. talked about the Star Wars thing. Yeah. Maybe yeah. Okay. Maybe maybe I'm making that up then. But I, I believe he is writing a Star Wars film be that is being directed by Charmaine Obey Chinoy who I'm not familiar with as a director, but maybe you can enlighten me to, if if this person has done anything. I cannot. Yeah. You, well, so. th they are doing a, doing a film that I, I think that is the one which uh, Daisy Ridley will be reprising her role as Ray set after the events of 
the sequel trilogy, something like I think they were saying like five to ten years after the sequel trilogy. Scott, that is a combination of things that I just simply could not care less about. I'm going to be honest. That is just just feels like the worst direction for the movies to go to go on moving forward. That's one. Do you want to comment now or do you want to wait to save save your thoughts to the end? I can save them for the end. I don't think I'm going to have a whole lot to say. But okay, that's fair enough. Uh, the second one, I'm going to save. I'm going to say what I think is the most exciting one for last, uh, Scott. So the second one is Dave Fil- is Dave Filoni is directing a Star Wars movie, which well, they were a little coy about what the what the subject of the film was going to be about. But it, he sort of teased that it would make quote unquote logical sense for the for the next step for his, for him to direct a film that essentially concludes this sort of like our canon of TV shows that he has sort of been the sort of hive mind behind. So that includes things like Star Wars, the Clone Wars, Star Wars Rebels, and then most recently Mandalorian, Ahsoka. What other show? There's another show. There's like one of the I can't remember. There's so many different shows, like one of the the Ranger shows. I think I can't remember the name of it at this point. Boba Fett isn't included in there. I think no Boba Fett would be included in there, but there's some other one which is like the the I forget what they're called. They're like the rebel pilots. They show up in season two of The Mandalorian. You know what I'm talking about? Basically, what you're saying is they made a series about all the random dudes that you see like flying in the X wings in movies. I think no, I never, think that's literally you never what it know is. what any of their names are. But they're yeah, just no, in there no, and I yell think, like Red Leader, Red Leader. I literally think that's what it is, though. I could be wrong. <laughs> I, I didn't Fair do enough. my homework to see if that is still in development or if that's still happening. But it's sort of like that lineage of TV shows that there's going to be some sort of like concluding event film that it sounds like he'll be directing. Again, that's not like official confirmation, but that's like the gist of what I understood from an interview that he gave after that was sort of announced. Again, I, I'm sort of just like kind of brain dead on Mando right now. Like it, the new season is out and I thought I cared, but I guess I don't care because I'm not watching it right now, Scott. So I guess I just don't care about Mandalorian anymore, which is fine. Like whatever, not a big deal. Um, but I feel like I really liked season one and season two and maybe Andor just broke me of other star wars shows i'm not sure anyway the most exciting project is the one that james mangold is directing because this is going to be set in the old republic time period which is hundreds of years i believe before the events of even the prequel trilogy and i think this is the best this is the best decision because i don't know i don't think i've talked about this on the podcast before but there was a period of time during the pandemic where i got into reading and when I was reading again, sort of for, for fun, I, I read some like more serious stuff. Like I read like all the Sally Rooney books and, and other stuff in, of that vein, sort of more mature fiction. But I also did dip my toe into the Star Wars canon of novels as sort of like, you know, I don't know, couch potato reading uh, when I was too bored to keep watching another TV show. And I was reading not the Old Republic, but the High Republic era, which is like the new era of Star Wars novels they've been reading. And that is just simply like really entertaining and interesting to me because it's just not it is like in universe, but like not related to anything that we've seen in the movies. Uh, Maybe there's like some threads of similarity with some of the stuff talked about in some of the TV shows. I don't know. But I just really enjoyed that. It was sort of it was Star Wars, but like fresh again, as opposed to some this recycled, like reused. I don't want to say garbage. That's like a little too harsh, but like the recycled and reused nonsense that I feel like we've gotten churned out over and over again is appealing for some people and I'm really happy for those people. But for me, I just feel like my interest is fading in it. And so to have the announcement that James Mangold, a great, a truly great filmmaker is going to be doing a 
a Star Wars movie set in a completely different time period. And it seems like he's probably going to have pretty free reign to do with as he wants. Like maybe he's going to be pulling some characters from the old Republic novels that are not even officially canon anymore. I don't think technically because um, <clears throat> that was part of like the pre Disney acquisition. But the fact that he's sort of getting free reign is like exactly the kind of thing that I mean, it's like literally what I wanted Ryan Johnson to be able to have in the Star Wars universe was just sort of free reign to like do something that's interesting to him. And obviously that's not happening anymore for a variety of reasons. And I'm just, no, a hundred percent. And I'm just excited that like James Mangold is going to at least make one movie before he gets like canceled by the Star Wars bros. Um, So that's what I'm going to go with. I mean, he makes very like crowd pleasing films. So I don't think I was going to say, I don't think Mangold's the type that's going to rock the boat in the way that Ryan Johnson did. Probably. No, no, no. I think that's fair. But at least I feel like James Mangold is a very safe set of hands to give you something that's like, Sure. not i mean drivel that... he's directing indiana jones and the dial of destiny coming out sure and ford versus ferrari is like the ultimate like yeah let's rock kind of like mainstream appealing film in my opinion um what a great year 2019 was for movie scott can we go back to 2019 um <laughs> yeah so i mean x rise of skywalker i guess can we go back to 2019 um yeah, so I, I just like the James Mangold project is legitimately exciting to me. The other two projects, I mean, I'm I will see them, I guess. But the Filoni stuff is like real MCU hive mind stuff going on here. And I'm just like, why? Why? <laughs> you think this is working for you on the other side of the business right now? Um, so I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what I was going to say is my interest has has very much faded look if you go back and listen to our star wars countdown podcast you can hear the journey right that sure i have been on in particular with yeah. you know, star wars being something that i loved so much and was very important to me as a kid and growing up it's something that was and still was just for... five years ago yeah six years yeah. ago um and then you know a number of things happened, but of course, the the major one being Rise of Skywalker, just kind of completely, you know, destroying any store integrity in the in the storytelling for the sequel yeah. trilogy, and and then the other thing being kind of what you're speaking to there of this kind of becoming Marvelified, the Star Wars universe. I mean, you know, when Star Wars was it was you know a genuine event, right? When every two three years we got a single star wars film right maybe it was in you know the main skywalker saga maybe it was like one of the spinoff films mm -hmm. like rogue one or solo but we were getting a star wars film only every couple of years and it was an event when we did so now and and, and the same thing with the mcu right like we were getting one or two movies a year now it is like you have you know three different movie series that are going to be coming out um, about different periods of time. You have all of these TV shows as well. It is, you know, sensory overload. Mm -hmm. And I just don't care enough anymore to want to seek any of this out. I mean, I I'm totally with you that the Mangold thing is the most interesting. And I'm sure I will see it. If there's one thing here that I'm going to prioritize, it's that. But like, I don't really care anymore about any of this stuff. And it's, it sounds so crazy to say that about something that I once cared about a lot, but yeah, that's what you did. JJ Abrams. Look what, look what you made me do. Um, I, I hate to say it, but that, you know, rise of Skywalker was a slap in the face to 
a certain, you know, contingent of Star Wars fans, me included. And even though some of this stuff is probably going to be okay, like it's it's hard for me to to go back to that, knowing that the degree of difficulty in wading into those waters is much higher now than it once was because of all the content that is out there. And then, you know, the fact that seems like we're going to be stuck in this you never never ending cycle of just snake eating its tail and you know characters yeah. coming back and you know storylines coming back and retconning and all of this stuff it's it just it's just not interesting to me anymore yeah i totally hear you on that i, I mean that is there's so many reasons why man gold's project is the most interesting and i think you nailed it like one it's it's fresh it's at a different time there's no homework involved with it also i mean james mangold is the one making it that's like kind of an obvious maybe on the nose thing definitely the highest pedigree of filmmaker of of the three who are who are directing star wars projects right or confirmed to be directing the star wars projects right now yeah i just i feel like they're feeling they're feeling a bit burnt disney is feeling a bit burned with marvel and what they did in phase four of the mcu with all the tv shows specifically and and we know they've actively talked about how they are throttling back the TV show side of the business there. And I think that's wise. Star Wars feels like it's had the sort of opposite problem where they've literally not been able to, to produce a movie since 2019. Meanwhile, they're pumping out two to three Star Wars shows a year. And two of those three are hot garbage, frankly. When they come out like last year, Obi-Wan, trash. Boba Fett, pretty much mostly trash. Andor is the exception there. I think no surprise that, you know, the, the people making that film are not your maybe sort of prototypical Disney want to work with you to build a cog in a machine of a wider vision that we see that isn't translating as well anymore. You know, it's a it's a film with a with a with a very finite timeline, with a finite story that it's trying to tell that's executed properly. But it just feels like it's been mostly miss. And it, I'm, I'm not feeling convinced that these other shows that are coming out, I mean, Mandalorian season three, it doesn't seem like people are thrilled by it. Frankly, I haven't watched it yet. I'm sure I'll get around to it. Ahsoka is coming out later this year and they are introducing Thrawn to live action. Who's a big character in sort of like the wider universe of star Wars, who I think is, I think, I mean, I've read one of those, one of those books um, and I do really like it, but like, is that like, are they going to, like, I don't really have the confidence they're going to be able to translate that well um, and really capture what it is. It's just like, even more so than Marvel's got the point that you're making around homework. Like every time I look at like, what is like the reference point in the Star Wars show? It's like, oh, there's these 35 episodes of the Clone Wars you should watch. Yeah. And like, oh, you need to go watch the Bad Batch, which is like, that's like really cool for like the intense the intense Star Wars out there of which sweaties, yeah. the sweaties of which like I have dipped in and out of, I would say, but I just like, there's seven seasons of clone wars or something like that. There's like four seasons of rebels. I, I mean, maybe I'm, I think I'm getting the season count wrong there. No, I think you're right. One. Sure. Yeah. I'm just like, and then two seasons of the bad batch. It looks interesting. I just like, I just simply, am not going to make the time for that. It's just yeah. crazy. It's worse than like, that is worse than the MCU in my, in my opinion. And yeah. like you can and like Mandal, it's not like Mandalorian isn't watchable if you haven't seen, you know, the Darksaber in the Clone Wars. But like the fact that 
there is this deeper like there's something that's there's something not tantalizing about that to me whereas like the idea would be that for example you go watch john wick and you're like man i really want to see the continental spinoff or whatever that that's kind of, you know it, it's like the the homework is digestible and the and like the world is so interesting that you want to then go watch the other stuff that would give you deeper insight into it and they just have not been able to capture that i think with what they're doing with mando and ahsoka and you know, rebels clone wars etc cetera, etc cetera. um you know m- maybe that they can land land the x-wing on this one but it's just super disappointing and that's why like honestly since rise of skywalker beside and and i guess besides Andor, which really grabbed me for a variety of different reasons the most excited i've been about star wars is reading these high republic books that i read a couple years ago yeah they just shot themselves in the foot yeah kind of crazy that kathleen kennedy still has a job over there like you know the the i saw this news and stuff over the weekend or whenever it was and it was like oh yeah. star wars celebration is happening i'm like they're really still doing that aren't they they're really still doing yeah. star wars celebration and then but then you which, see the photos uh, of the of the conventions guy it's like yeah you know shoulder to shoulder wall to wall i know that's like an ignorant statement for me to make because yeah, yeah, to yeah. our point there's now more star wars content coming out than ever but still it just feels like in after post rise of skywalker i know i know that there are tons of people out there who like skywalker i just don't know who they are i don't want to know any of them if i'm yeah yeah i mean i think uh if you're curious to know our feelings about it go listen to our star wars countdown we were a different mindset different time maybe happier people i don't know it was pre-covid so yeah probably different time yeah it was pre i don't know castle in the ground what movies were we doing in early 2020 valley girl <laughs> yeah valley girl god that was so sick of us to do a movie every single week still in the pandemic i can't believe we did that um we did scream did we do scream no that was even but we did scream before the pandemic didn't we didn't we do scream in 2019 oh the 90 1996 yeah the original when did we do that um, was that in the pandemic i don't remember honestly don't i don't remember either uh i know i know that we cheated one week but i think that actually might have even been in 2019 when was the Halloween remake? 2018? Yes. Not remake. Legacy sequel. Yeah, I know what you meant. Um, 2018. Yeah, so I think 2019 we did Scream. Because I don't think we did a Halloween episode that year. Because Halloween didn't have a film. And we typically have been doing those. We've rambled long enough here. Go ahead. On the Scream conversation, I will say as my closing note for the episode. Oh, um, well. If anyone's curious, our friend of the pod, Danny Kunkel... Yeah. who appeared on that Scream episode, has appeared on a couple of our horror episodes before, is a big Scream fan. Texted me last night. She finally saw Scream 6. Okay. She loved it. Loved um, it. She okay. would put it third in her rankings ahead of That's 2, sick. 5, and 3. So she puts 1 and 4 above it. But, um, she said she thought Melissa Barrera was better this time. Um, yeah. She says she is obsessed with the bit of Chad being dead and not at the end of each movie. Um, and also she said, I'm glad they didn't kill Gail, which is not something that I can, uh, not a sentiment I can share with her because sure. for the reasons we talked about, I wished that they had gone all the way with that. But, um, did she have any Samara weaving take. takes? Need some weaving no. takes. No weaving takes. Okay. <laughs> she did not. Okay. But, uh, those those were that was pretty much the gist of her take but she loved it so there you go very cool it's a fun movie yeah i think uh i think i i gave that film what did i give it three and a half stars something around seven i don't know good film that should do it 
I think, though, for episode 231 of Some Like It's Scott. Scott, I'd ask you typically uh, if you have any parting thoughts for us. But what I will say is that I do have a parting thought for you. Anderson Countdown starts this weekend as of the time you're listening to this podcast. Part one, Bottle Rocket will be the first episode. We're going to be going through all of Wes Anderson's 10 feature films to date leading into Asteroid City at the end of June. Jay Habib is back. We are showing him the films of Wes Anderson for the first time. There was a couple you hadn't seen. There was quite a few in the early filmography of Anderson that I had not seen. And overall, you know, we're still wrapping up the the countdown in the pre-tape. But uh, overall, I think some really great episodes in there. Yeah. Um, frankly, I would say, Scott, in some of the rewatches recently, um, an even greater love for some of the movies that I already liked a lot before is what I would say. Um, so really cool to revisit those. Yeah. I mean, I, Wes Anderson's a director that my feelings have evolved on a lot over the years. I, I think I think he is one of those directors, the more that you grow up and mature, maybe for lack of a better phrase, yeah. um, you see things in the film that maybe you you couldn't see before amidst all of the style, right, that he is. Yeah, I mean, he, he deals with such mature themes, I think, a lot, in yeah. a lot of his movies. It's kind of. I think they are accessible to people who are a bit younger, but I think the full depth of them maybe requires yeah. a little bit more life experience. You know, you want the, when you're younger, maybe watching films, you want stuff that's morally black and white, right? You want character protagonists and everything you can root for, which his films definitely do not always have. Um, but yes, now in time and uh, with rewatching films, watching films for the first time for this series, um, he's he's very high up there for my favorite filmmakers now. I, I think it's it's pretty safe to say that. Yeah. Um, I I look forward to a new Wes Anderson movie about as much as any other auteur that I love um, putting out a new movie. Yeah, and congrats, you're feasting this year because it seems like you're gonna have two. Yeah. If so lucky. look forward to that. I guess I don't know if we're getting what what is the other film that he's coming out coming out with a weird name. The the something life of Henry Sugar. It's based on a uh, Roald Dahl story. Uh, another Roald Dahl. Is it anime? Is it stop motion? I don't think so. No. Okay, that's a Netflix film. So we'll see if it comes out later this year. Um, but yeah, two Wes Anderson films this year. You got our Anderson countdown. Maybe news at the end of that of what our next countdown th- series will be. I will say for all those people hoping that we get to talk about um, Dune, it's not going to be Denny Villeneuve. We're not doing Denny Villeneuve, much to my chagrin. I, th- uh, I was going to say, I think that was just you that was asking for that, Scott. But You know you want to talk about prisoners. You know you want to talk about Hugh and Jake going crazy. No? Prisoners is not my favorite. I mean, it's a good movie, but it's not my favorite of his, for sure. Okay. But. Well, you know, any any opportunity to talk about Arrival, I'm willing to uh, come to the table on, Scott. I'll yeah, say that much. I, so I'm aware. Maybe in the future, we can convince Jay Habib to uh, watch Dune Part 1. Uh, and even Dune Part 2. But uh, that will not be our next countdown series. So st- so w- listen to the Anderson countdown to hear some great takes about Wes Anderson. Um, and then also, I guess, listen to the end to find out. I think the next countdown series, Scott, will be a real big uh, breakaway from what we've typically done in the past. Is that fair to say? Is that fair to tease it like yes. that? Yes, yeah. a- absolutely. I think yeah, that's yeah. A-, a good tease for the audience. Yeah. So get excited. Um, yeah. Wes Anderson starts this Sunday. 
if you're listening to it when this podcast comes out. Bottle Rocket will be coming out, and we'll give reminders on future episodes as well of what episodes are coming out in that week, but it'll be in the same feed that you get this podcast on, so no need to go anywhere different to find it. All right, Scott, where can people find you on the socials? I am at Scarby Dent on all platforms. And you can find me at, at shelton 2013 on the platforms like Twitter, Letterboxd, Serialize. Don't forget to also check out our podcast Patreon at www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. If you can support us over there, we'd appreciate that. But if not, that's okay. You can still find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. Wherever you listen to your podcast, where we'd love it if you rated, reviewed, subscribed, and shared so that we continue to reach a broader audience. And finally, we really appreciate all of you for taking time to listen to us chat about air. We'll be back next week with a review of the Universal Monsters horror comedy, Renfield. We hope you'll join us for that next time. But until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Sheldon. We'll see you next time.